This podcast is supported by Mount Sinai, finding a way to push medicine forward so that more people live healthier, fuller lives. With eight hospitals, a leading medical school, nearly 300 research labs, and over 400 outpatient practices, there is no challenge too great. More information at mountsinai.org. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Food isn't taken seriously enough in America, says journalist Mark Bittman. The nation's leaders are thinking about climate change, inequality, and infrastructure. But food touches all of those issues. Our food system, says Bittman, needs to be reimagined so land is used fairly and well, and people have access to food that promotes health, not illness. What's most interesting now is that we're at a place where we have the knowledge, the technical ability, and the stability of population. We have everything we need except for political will to turn the food system into something that really works for all of humanity. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Murdoch Mind, Body, Spirit series from Aspen Community Programs. Mark Bittman's latest book dives deep into food as one of the most critical issues of our time. Animal, Vegetable, Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal, tells the story of humankind through the lens of food. The frenzy for food has driven human history to some of its most catastrophic moments, from slavery and colonialism to our current moment. Right now, Bittman writes, Big food, which is driven by corporate greed and gluttony, is exacerbating climate change, plundering the planet, and sickening people. Bittman, a former New York Times columnist and author of 30 books, speaks with Kathleen Finley about what needs to change so that agriculture doesn't wreck the planet and healthy food is available to all. Finley is president of the Glenwood Center for Regional Food and Farming. Here's Finley. People know your work writing about food for the Times, certainly writing about cooking and eating for decades. Um, But this is like your first serious deep dive into food as one of the most critical and important issues of our time. So my first question is, why why this book and why right now for you? Well, the book had to be written. Um, I don't think uh, that food is taken seriously enough in this country. Um, You can see examples of that everywhere. Whenever uh, there's a story about the critical issues confronting President Biden or anyone else who's making policy, food and agriculture is left off the list. The list is climate change, the list is inequality, the list is racism, the list is, you name it, infrastructure. The list is rarely includes agriculture and food, and yet those things determine so much of those other those those other things, climate change, of course, and and immigration and income inequality and land use and blah, 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 are all dependent on food and agriculture and um, and especially public health, which will which I'm sure we'll talk about. So it's a book that was crying to be written. And I especially wanted to write it because when I wrote my opinion column for The Times, um, I thought this is great. I have the biggest platform imaginable. I can write about anything I want. I can write weekly and people will, through my genius, will begin to understand the elements of the food that comprise the food system and why it's uh, so important and so damaging right now. 
And lo and behold, that didn't happen. And I think part of that is that, you know, change is, change is hard. There's no question. But I think part of it is that building, when you make a mosaic, which is what I was, how I was thinking of those columns, when you make a mosaic, it's important to have all the pieces in one place at the same time. It's not enough to take each shard of glass or marble and show it to somebody and say, this is part of the mosaic. So the book is that work, yeah. that creative work, um, all in one place. It's not a collection of stuff from the times, but but it's a, uh, it represents five more years of thinking and writing after an initial five years of thinking and writing about this subject. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased with it. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's a great way to put it, it because it really is an, a, the scale and scope of, of the issue that you cover in the book. It's pretty impressive. So for those of you who haven't read it, you know, it really starts with the beginning of this planet and then takes us to today through the lens of food and agriculture. So let's walk through that a little bit. Um, first, tell me what was most illuminating or surprising to you when you looked back at sort of uh, how we got to where we are today. What, what surprised you in this research, putting the pieces together, as you say? You know, if we think of history as sort of very ancient, ancient and, and contemporary, there are turning points in each of those things. And I don't think the anthropological and archeological aspects of this are uninteresting, but we're not really seeing a lot of, we don't really talk about a lot of that and it doesn't have direct impact or it's, it's, it's not something we can change or address right now. Jared Diamond wrote a really um, influential essay uh, called The Greatest Mistake in the History of the Human Race or something very much like that. And he, his argument was that at the beginning of agriculture, which was 10,000 years ago, was a tragedy. And it may well have been a tragedy. You can make that argument, and Jared Diamond did make that argument. It doesn't matter. Um, it, it doesn't, it's, it's an interesting conversation to have, but there's no going back. Because when you look at the history say up until 1500 or 1200, whatever, all you see is accelerating growth of humans and accelerating growth of agriculture. And each of those makes the other possible and necessary. Mm -hmm. So as there are more humans, you need more agriculture. And as there are, is more agriculture, it's possible to create more humans. It's also necessary to have more humans because farmers until very recently needed lots of children to do the labor. So the reason our planet is so populous is because of the success of agriculture. And there were, I don't think we want to go down each of these rabbit holes, but there were, were several times in history when it could have, when agriculture could have paused or slowed down, and in which case population growth would have paused or slowed down. And now, as we know, population growth is going to pause and slow down because of uh increased opportunities for women, increased education for women and girls, increased access to birth control, a general rise in the standard of living and so on. Um, so we are finally at a place where we can say, this is the population of the earth. How do we support it without ruining, without killing the planet? Um, and, and that's the change that we're looking at trying to, to create. 
the intervening changes from in this sort of modern era from 12 or 1500 until now are contemporary history and many of them are interesting but and we can talk about them or not as you like but um but what's what's most interesting now is that we're at a place where we have the knowledge the technical ability and the stability of population if everything we need except for political will mm. to turn the food system in something that really into something that really works for all of humanity right i mean a big takeaway from the book is um how in mo in more recent history we've really prioritized food as a commodity rather than acknowledging its life-giving you know benefits that should benefit in fact all of us and not just the few who are have a corporate interest in the success of agriculture as a as a sector um and like do you feel like that's that's changing, that has the opportunity to change, that mindset of realigning how we look and value food um, away from sort of just as an economic growth component for this country. Well, we wouldn't have had this conversation 10 years ago and we would likely not have had it five years ago. So we are having it now. There's a certain preaching to the choir element to it. We understand that, but we are having a conversation about how to make the food system better. And, you know, we haven't, you and I, who've had this conversation together on and off for, and we've known each other 12 or 12 or 13 years. I know I've always talked about food and public health and the environment. Um, we haven't used the word organic yet. We haven't used the words chronic disease yet. We're really just talking about the super highest level. How do we do agriculture without wrecking the planet? Or how do we produce food fairly for the biggest number of people possible? Those are questions that really weren't widely asked even a few years ago. So at least we're in the conversation. As yeah. I said at the beginning, I find it really depressing and discouraging that food and agriculture are not top level conversations. That, that President Biden or and President Obama had this opportunity also are not out there saying we want to see our land used fairly and well. We want to see food that promotes health, not illness. Um, we want to see people taking food seriously. Those are such important issues and such important things to say. If we can get to that point, yeah, I could be optimistic. I think progressives in general are are kind of at a place where we're willing to be optimistic or we see a window of, of potential optimism, but we're also really nervous that things are going to, things are going to yeah. continue to go badly, I think. Right. And, you know, it does seem like Biden is um, prioritizing the climate crisis, uh, you know, rightly so, right. There's a lot of challenges, but as you say, food is fundamental to all of those issues and making those connections, I think is imperative for our audience and for the policymakers. Is there anything that you're seeing that's coming out of the administration that's um, looking hopeful that, I mean, how can, for example, how can we talk about the climate crisis and not talk about the role of agriculture? Um, well, I think, Forgive me, but maybe the question is, how can we force people to talk about the role of agriculture while they're talking about the climate crisis? Right. Because the number we use 
um, the number I use, and I think it's pretty accurate. There's no act. There's no strict accuracy in this, but that a, th a third of greenhouse gas is generated by agriculture and related industries. So it's obviously a big factor in climate change. And yet, few people talk about how can we change agriculture. We hear a lot about the impact of agriculture, the impact of climate change on agriculture. Less frequently discussed is the impact of agriculture on climate change. We hear about uh, the burning of the rainforests, but we don't hear about misuse of soil. We don't hear about loss of topsoil. Uh, we don't hear about the resource use in agriculture. We don't hear about so much about the greenhouse gas generation of industrially produced animals. We don't hear that much about that stuff. Again, you and I and people who are sort of in this world on a daily basis talk about these things all the time. But if, you know, I read three newspapers a day and the headlines are almost never about land, land use, agriculture, agricultural resources, food, diet, public health. These are crying, crying issues. And, yeah. and I, will, I will raise the public health thing now because it is so important. In an era where people see what happens when there's a crisis, when we really saw that our government could respond to a crisis. It's still true that more people died of diet-related chronic disease in 2020 than of COVID, and more people will die in 2021 from diet-related chronic disease. And way more people will die in 2022, presumably, as more and more people get vaccinated and so on. And yet, right. diet and chronic disease are barely considered newsworthy, let alone crises. Yeah, um, as you know, part of the work that I do here at Glenwood is to help people support a regional food system that is equitable and good for the environment and healthy. And the, the pandemic had um, really connected people to their local food scene in a way that was unprecedented. And we saw it nationally similar efforts. Um, more people are going to their farmer's markets to signing up for CSAs or figuring out where their food is coming from and finding their local farms. Um, do you think that's gonna stick? I mean, do you think we've converted some folks who, um, who might not have understood even what the food system is and how centralized and uh, not, you know, not, not regionalized it is? I think, I think it's significant. I don't think it's overpoweringly, I don't think the change is here, but part of, part of the theory of making change is that you have to be ready when the opportunity is there. And, and when COVID hit, there were CSAs in place and there were farmers markets. You know, I remember it was probably Six or eight years ago, I gave a talk where I said, this year is the first year there are more farmer's markets in the United States than McDonald's. Well, that had to happen. And, and that did happen. So that when COVID is hit- that true? There are more <laughs> farmer's markets in the United States than there are McDonald's? Yeah, I think it's, yes, there are. Huh. You know, there are these things you say over and over again, and you believe them. But generally, I do my research before I say stuff. So I'm going to say yes. We can check. We can fact check me later. Um, so when, when COVID exposed some of the weaknesses of the global food system and the global supply chain 
uh, not only of food, but of toilet paper, obviously. Um, there was a place for people to turn to. Now, it couldn't fulfill everybody's need around everything, but you know better than I do. Every farmer's market was jammed last summer and is jammed again this summer. Every CSA sold out this year, sold out last year for this year. And you again, you'd know better than I do, is already sold out for next year. People are saying, I can rely on regional food. I want regional food. Now, how does that translate long term? How do you get, you know, my back of the envelope calculations is, is that, is that we need 50,000 farms like Glenwood or Full Belly Farm in California or farms that really do everything right. If we had 50,000 of those, the United States would be an incredible agricultural pioneer. If we had 10,000, it would be amazing. But we have 20. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what the number is, but farms of significant acreage that are doing everything right. We don't have, we certainly have fewer than 100. So um, there's the modeling is really, really important for people to be able to say, oh, I know this place where uh, it's carbon neutral. All the fruits and vegetables are grown in, in, in soil that's being replenished. All the animals are pasture raised for real on and on and on. I know that such a place exists and it provides food that's available where I live. That's super, super important, but we need so many more examples of that. So that the, the next time there's an opportunity for, for people to say, well, there's a problem here. I, want, I wonder what the regional food system is like. The regional food system is stronger and better. I mean, this is yeah. not, to, not to pat your back, but this is why the work you're doing is so important. Right. And I mean, help our audience understand what are the what are the ways in which we can create that vision? What do we need? Why don't we have more farms like Glenwood doing it? What's not happening that needs to happen? Well, I think the key is land. And I think the, the, I think so much of this is anecdotal, but we meet people, I meet people all the time who want to farm and can't find, can't find or can't afford land. Um, we know we know people who are farming on a quarter of an acre, which is not obviously not a, a huge piece of land and people who are doing what you'd call a micro CSA. Maybe they're serving 12 or 20 families, um, which are, which is great. But it's not the same as having a farm of 50 or 500 acres that is providing food to to 20 farmers markets that has a CSA of a thousand people that. Uh, is shipping food to local supermarkets and so on. And those are the kinds of farms um, that we need. Farms doing good agriculture on significant, not giant, but significant acreage. And the, the fundamental problem there is, well, the fundamental problem is that we have an agricultural system that supports policy, or we have policy that supports bad uh, agriculture. If we had a policy that supported good, good agriculture, including putting hand in, land into the hands of people who want to farm it well, that would create significant change. That's a big deal. That's yeah. not something, you know, that's not like call your congressman and make him or her do that. That's like educate your Congress people, educate your senators, and maybe we can start to move in that direction in the next few years. But that's going to take land reform that's going to take 
a complete rewriting of the farm bill that's going to take a real discussion of what we subsidize and what we think is important in food, how we get food to people. I mean, imagine drive-through windows where the food is healthy instead of unhealthy. It's not that hard to imagine, but now imagine a path that gets us there. That's much more difficult. Right, right. And, you know, what? when we have these conversations, sometimes people say, well, the kind of agriculture that you're talking about that stewards the land that's regenerative to the soil that pairs pays people fairly and um, has uh, ethical treatment of animals all of that inherently more expensive we can't scale it people can't afford it um, debunk that myth for me we subsidize agriculture. It's expensive to grow food. It's expensive to grow food for 300 million people. And anyone who's gardened and even fantasized about being self, self subsidizing, whatever the word is, self-sufficient, um, knows, how, knows how difficult that is. So agriculture is expensive and agriculture on the scale that we've seen since say the 18th or 19th century requires government intervention to be done even as badly as it's being done now. So we are subsidizing. We, the United States, subsidizes the feeding of American people, but we're subsidizing it in a way that's bad for our health and bad for the environment. It's bad for many other things, but let's just take those two because they're big. Um, we need to try to subsidize agriculture that's good for people's health and good for the environment. We know things are going to change because they always do. The status quo never lasts. So are things going to get worse or are they going to get better? And I think our involvement in trying to make them better, our argument that this isn't the, this isn't the ultimate stage of agriculture, this isn't the way we're going to be feeding people in the world for the remainder of time. It's got to get better. It has to become, to use an overused word, more sustainable, and it has to become more healthy. We need to care for the earth and we need to care for eaters. And today's agriculture for the most part does not do that. And that makes it, that means it has a terminus that makes it unsustainable. Um, too many people are getting sick from eating the way that we're eating and too much land is being harmed and the rest of the environment as well from farming the way we're farming. There are alternatives. We can't, you know, when people say, well, show me or, or it can't happen. You, all you can say is let's move in the right direction and then, and then reevaluate and keep changing and changing and changing. This is not a three-year process or a five-year process, but in order to move in the right direction, we have to support good farming. We have to try to get better food out there. We have to uh, regulate the marketing of junk food. We have to teach our children what food means. We have to feed our children better. We have to encourage good farming and make it easier for people, not harder, and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. I mean, to talk about junk food for a second and health. Um, one of the more surprising things that I took away from the book was just a real understanding of the sinister way we market unhealthy food to people, to all people, but especially to children, you know, and um, I hadn't really stopped and thought about 
the massive amount of energy and um, promotion that goes into really teaching kids at a very young age that sugar is like an okay thing to have at, at breakfast every morning or, you know, and, and just and the proliferation of junk food that you lay out in the book from, even if, even if we got some things wrong about how we steward lands before we started kind of adding ultra processed food into the equation, um, it might've been healthier if not unhealthy for the environment. But now it's just like we're inundated with all of this crap. Right. I don't know. My favorite statistic, there's a lot to say about that, but my favorite statistic, you know, it's been increasingly demonstrated that the problem with the contemporary American diet is not a single ingredient. It's not saturated fat. It's not, it's not salt. It's not even sugar. It's ultra processed food. Right. And my favorite statistic to take away from animal vegetable junk is that 60% of the calories available to Americans right now are from ultra processed food, which means that either we're all eating 60% of our calories in the form of ultra processed food, or that 60% of us are getting 100% of our calories from ultra processed food, but it's obviously somewhere in between. We all eat junk food. We all get calories from junk food, and none of that is nourishing in the yeah. sense of what's really nourishing. Let's now, I the mean, targeting I just of- like underscore that. So what you're saying is of all everyone's food choices, of all of our food choices, most of those choices are junk food. The majority. Right? Yeah. Go to any fast food restaurant where it's 100% junk food or 80% junk food. Go to any supermarket and walk down the aisles or just do it in your mind. What yeah. are the aisles of supermarkets? Right. So the majority the, uh, is junk food. Right. And so then when we you know, again, often when we have these conversations, people want to know what they can do and we should be making choices that are healthy choices and personal diets should improve. And, the, you know, the family needs to know how to cook better or, you know, so, but if most of your choices from the get go are inherently unhealthy, it seems that that's a tall order to put on folks as individuals. I do think that the public health community has been mistaken in, in emphasizing personal choice as a way to fix these things. We can't shop our way to a better food system. And, and that's especially true when not everybody has the financial uh, agility, shall we say, or ability to, to change their diets, to start buying more expensive fruits and vegetables to start shopping and cooking. Not everybody has time to cook. You know, I, re I really think that if you want to change the way people eat, in a way, the key is getting the food at the drive-through to be healthier food. And that's a symptom. I mean, that's not, I wouldn't start a campaign that says make drive-through food healthy. But I think if we were able to pick up healthy food in a variety of different ways, in a variety of different places, then people would eat better. But to demand that people eat better while so many of the choices are bad choices, that's putting you in an impossible position. In fact, it's very much like saying, give up your car, take public transportation when the nearest bus stop is two miles away. It's, right. it's, it's, it's actually a pretty similar parallel.
This podcast is supported by Mount Sinai, finding a way to push medicine forward so that more people live healthier, fuller lives. With eight hospitals, a leading medical school, nearly 300 research labs, and over 400 outpatient practices, there is no challenge too great. More information at mountsinai.org. You know, you've said it a number of times, even in just this conversation, that in order to create that vision of a healthy, just, uh, environmentally responsible food system, we really need some, you know, some sweeping policy change, maybe a complete mindset about what food is, but enacted through some policy that would incentivize the kind of farming that we're describing, um, so let's dig a little deeper, you know, uh, in terms of Tom Vilsack and what he's doing at the USDA. Do you see, I know you're frustrated by the lack of attention, but what are, what are some things that you're seeing that might be um, hopeful? Well, the fact that Tom Vilsack, that USDA was active in the COVID Relief Act and did uh, a- and attempted, still hasn't been enacted, but attempted to give some debt relief to black farmers, historically maltreated black farmers, that was a good sign. But now it's beginning to feel a little more like a symbolic gesture, a a good symbolic gesture, because we've heard nothing from USDA in in ensuing months. We've heard nothing from FDA, which regulates a large part of the food supply. We've heard very little from FTC, which was once a powerful force in trying to regulate the marketing of junk food to children. In a truly progressive administration, those would be activist agencies. And um, if it's okay with you, I'd like, I'd like to say, say a few things that I think would signal what a progressive government and food would look like. Yeah, please. Let's hear okay. it. Well, the first thing, which could have happened in the first weeks of the Obama administration and didn't, and they had excuses, but they were lame excuses, um, would be to eliminate the routine use of antibiotics in the food supply. And I think everybody's familiar with that issue. I'm not going to go into it, but it's something that FDA regulates and could change like tomorrow, maybe not literally tomorrow, but certainly between 2009 and now it could have changed. Right. And I mean, uh, folks listening might be familiar with the topic, but just tell us why it's so important. Like why that one change, what ripple effect it would have. Well, you know, one of the reasons it's important is because it's doable. It's like doable by edict. The FDA commissioner, who has yet to be appointed by Joe Biden, by the way, the FDA commissioner could say, antibiotics could only be used for sick animals. And that would change at least two things. One is that the 80% of antibiotics are used routinely in animals. That is, humans are only prescribed 20% of the antibiotics by weight that are prescribed every year. That's breeding resistance in bacteria, and we are therefore breeding antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which makes humans sick and which is responsible for at least 25,000 deaths a year in the United States, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. That's number one. But number two is that it makes factory farming of animals more difficult. It doesn't make it impossible because there are a couple of countries in the EU that have 
ruled out routine use of antibiotics, and they're still doing factory farming. But it makes it a little less disgusting, a little yeah. less horrible. And that's the kind of first step that, that can be encouraging, that can make a positive difference, that can maybe get people to say, okay, we've done that. Now what do we want to do? Maybe we want to get rid of lagoons filled with manure that are around. Sounds like a good uh, idea. Yeah, concentrated animal feeding operations. Maybe we want to stop giving our kids junk food for lunch in schools. Um, maybe we want to make land available to people who want to farm it well, and so on. The, the kinds of things that are imaginable as first steps and second steps that, that don't cry revolution, but, but say evolution. Right. And what are some of the things, you know, um, the last third or so of the book is, is, is hopeful, actually. It's really looking at some of the efforts, even if they're quite uh, humble in their scale and impact, but are innovative and um, trying new things. What are, what are some of the things that you learned about or you saw or you witnessed that point the way toward a better future for food? Well, I think the fact that it's, it's well demonstrated that good farming is possible, that you can farm without chemical fertilizer, you can farm without uh, cancer-causing pesticides, you can farm without uh, uh, significant generation of greenhouse gases, you can carbon-neutral farm. All of those things have been explored in recent years, and all of them are possible, interesting, encouraging. I think, again, it goes back to, uh, and some of, one of the reasons that people were so encouraged by the COVID Relief Act's inclusion of the Justice for Black Farmers Act or parts of the Justice for Black Farmers Act is that wealth comes from land and that sensible agricultural policy means treating land well. And these are really big issues, but the, again, the fact that we're even having this conversation, I think is really important. Yeah, But until we have an EPA, that's an environmental protection agency, an FDA, an FTC, which is another consumer protection agency, you a, a, a principled USDA, which was founded as the people's agency, according to Abe Lincoln, until we have those agencies working towards making agriculture better, as individuals, it's really, really tough. And it, and it usually boils down to, yes, you can eat a better diet, probably you can eat a better diet, and you should be more active locally, politically, get on your school board, uh, pay attention to how your town or city procures food, call your congressperson and say, what are you doing to work for a better food system? Because some are. Um, get these Republican senators from agricultural states out of there, encourage your, encourage your adolescent children to move to Nebraska and run for office. I mean. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a lot one can do, but when some of the examples I'm thinking of, like some of the farming and farmer training networks in India, for example, in other countries where with state, I believe that that is yep, a guy that yep, runs Thank program. you for the prompt. Yeah. Um, you know, with state support or the labeling in Brazil, I think it is, or you know, where's where are some examples of policy in other parts of the world that are 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 
uh, can be inspiration for some of the things we might do here in the state. Thank you for that. Um, the the three best examples, which you you just touched on on each, the most encouraging stuff is happening in in Andhra Pradesh, and which is a state in India, but states in India are the size of countries. There are sixty million people in Andhra Pradesh. And there, uh, there's a farmer, it's a farmer education program funded by the state where villagers go to neighboring villages and, and many villages are a thousand people or fewer in India, but there are hundreds, thousands of them. Uh, farmers go to the next village and say, we have been taught a way to farm without uh, expensive chemical fertilizers and expensive chemical pesticides, and we can show you how to do that. And the idea is kind of a, a, a game of telephone, or it's, I don't know how to describe it, but, a, but a, a scheme in which the word spreads from village to village about how to farm without chemicals. And, and the farms are more productive. They're producing greater yields, a wider variety of crops at greater profits, and less harmful for all of these farmers. So that's growing at the at I think it's still doubling in size per year. And last I checked, there are five hundred thousand farmers involved in that program, which is a lot of farmers. Um, you mentioned Chile. Chile has the most progressive labeling laws in the world. So Tony the Tiger no longer exists in Chile, um, and and uh, that that kind of marketing is no longer legal there. Uh, and Brazil. Brazil illustrates two things. It illustrates the power of people working toward a better food system, and it demonstrates the, the challenge of keeping a progressive government because all the good changes that happened in Brazil in the 90s and the aughts and until 2015 or 2016 were basically taken away by the Bolsonaro administration. So you had restaurants in Brazil that had that were buying locally produced organic agriculture, cooking good food and serving it to people at affordable prices, those no longer exist. Mm -hmm. So it was inspirational, but it wasn't permanent. Right. Change has to be you know, carefully guarded, I think. Yeah. I mean, uh, thinking about those examples you just outlined, what comes to my mind is something you write about in the book about explaining sort of what agroecology is. You know, so often in this country we see agriculture, well, we've been taught to see agriculture as a, as a, a sector of the economy. Um, it, th there's a product, you know, um, and a, a lot of these, Right, it's a business and a lot of these, and those are, those are valid, but, but the efforts you're describing and the term agroecology, in my understanding of it, embraces the social value of food production, not just the food itself, right. but really, um, you know, cooperatives working together and thinking about health as a, as a, as a value for their communities, those sorts of things. Um, well, even okay. thinking of social justice. I mean, if you're, if you're describing agriculture, if ag when academics talk about agroecology, which is a combination of the words agriculture and ecology, obviously, but ecology meaning a theory of kind of the oneness of everything on earth, which sounds woo-woo, but is increasingly demonstrated to be truth. Um, it's not just about let's produce food without chemicals. Yes, that's an important first step, but let's care for animals. Let's care for the earth. Let's care for our workers. 
uh, let's care for eaters. And all of those things together mean let's care about social justice. Let's care about who's farming. Let's care about uh, providing the best possible lives for all the eaters on earth, which means everybody. Um, that's really the vision of the long-term vision of agroecology is a just society that has sustainable and just vision of agriculture. Right. And as you said at the top of this conversation, it's food is the great connector, right? It brings all of those things together, just as you're describing um, and within the term of agroecology, but you can't possibly um, address anyone in those, in that, in your mosaic analogy, you have to kind of think of it on a whole. And I do, I, I'm hopeful that we're, you know, we're learning. And I think that some of the changes that I'm seeing in the call for more regionalized, healthier, more just, more food sovereignty for people to feel that they have a say in what is at the grocery store or in their market. Um, I feel that it's, um, it's growing. And part of that growth, I think, is um, you can take credit for, some, for articulating the need and the way to get there so beautifully over the years, but especially in this book. So thank you for that. Well, you're having an optimistic day, clearly. So that's. Nice. <laughs> I haven't read the paper yet today. I've been too busy. So maybe that's the that's coloring my view. Um, but I mean, there's there's a lot of work to do, a lot of really important work to do. Yeah, I mean, so. two things, two things that I'll say that are kind of slogans is one is there's plenty of when people say, what should I do? The, the fast answer is there's plenty of good work to do. If you can imagine it, it probably needs to be done. Yeah. And the other thing is that we are united. We are all eaters. We are one family, and especially when it comes to food. But when it comes to the earth, when it when it comes to humanity, when it comes to our DNA, I mean, this stuff is we have so much more knowledge now than humans have ever had. We really know that this this earth can only work if we do it together and we do it sanely. Um, there's a reason that that almost all futuristic novels and, and even nonfiction is dystopian. And it's because we haven't expended the right amount of imagination on, on thinking of and building a better world. And it's, that's important work. It's not yeah. a joke. Right. No, not at all. It's, one, it's, it's the most important work. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Mark Bittman is a leading voice in global food culture and policy. He spent three decades at the New York Times, where he became the country's first weekly opinion writer at a major publication to concentrate on food. He's received six James Beard Awards. Kathleen Finley is a leader in the environmental movement. Her focus is on the intersection between health, agriculture, and the environment. They spoke in July as part of the Murdoch Mind, Body, Spirit series from Aspen Community Programs at the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Community Programs team and produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.
This podcast is supported by Mount Sinai, finding a way to push medicine forward so that more people live healthier, fuller lives. With eight hospitals, a leading medical school, nearly 300 research labs, and over 400 outpatient practices, there is no challenge too great. More information at mountsinai.org.